Let's go to him. Father God, we bless your wonderful name this morning. We praise you. We bless you. We say that you are wonderful, Lord, that you are a God of mercy and grace, and you have shown that to us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you that you take the broken, the sick, and the lame, and you make them healthy, Lord. We praise you this morning, Jesus, for that. We celebrate this morning that, Jesus, that tomb could never hold you. It was impossible, but you rose from the grave victorious, Lord Jesus. We praise you again this morning. <laughs> what a king, what a Lord you are, and we bless you. And we come and we lay our request before you as well this morning because we know you carry the power to answer. And we entrust it to you. We entrust every hard circumstance, everything that we find ourselves in, Lord, that you are carrying us through, that we can trust you, that you're faithful. That someday, Lord, there's going to be this day coming when we see you face to face and all the redeemed will stand before you in a place that is not like this sin-ridden world we live in today. Oh, man, what a day, Lord, that'll be. But now we live there in a place where sin does affect everything. Certainly sickness is a part of that, Lord, and we have many sick in our fellowship, many sick. I think of Paula Kroon this morning who's been struggling for many years to be a comfort to her, be a help to her, Lord, we pray. I think of the Crossroads mission this morning, Lord. I pray for the, the, the staff and all the leaders there who are trying to, to show your love to the, to the broken and to the homeless, Lord. God, I pray for the staff that you would equip them and enable them for the mission that they're given. I pray for a year of just effective ministry there where people are coming to be saved. I pray for the staff that you would just give them wisdom in dealing and how to preach the gospel, how to share the truth. And I pray for all the needs that they'd have there, Lord, that you would just bless that ministry this year. Another one that stands out to me this morning is this 17-year-old girl that's getting released. Big question when you're getting out, where are you going to go? <laughs> I've been there. You don't want to go home. You don't want to go home. So we pray you give her a place, Lord a place of refuge, a place of help. We know that help is you, Lord, but we know that you have put people in place, Lord. God, give her a home to go to. We just pray that for her. I pray for Ethan and Cheyenne this morning, for their baby, the baby on the way, maybe Wednesday. Lord, we pray for that. We just pray your hand upon them. We pray your favor. We pray for this little one that whatever, my boy or girl, we don't know. We don't know. You do, Lord, but that that baby would love you with its whole heart. Lord, you would rescue that baby. It would come to believe and to know you and just give the parents real grace. So I could go on forever this morning, Lord, but we pray for our service this morning. We love you. We bless you. Open your word to our ears and may we respond. We love you today, Lord Jesus. Amen.
All right, come on down front, kids. Grandpa Wick has a, Chris, has a kid story for you. <laughs> so, what have I got here? I got, I got to sit down here. I may not be able to get back up again, so somebody stand ready here. All right. So, I came to Hastings, Nebraska from St. Paul, Minnesota. We brought, put all of our stuff into our car, but it didn't have room for my guitar. So I had to leave my guitar up there. It's on the shelf, and I thought, I missed my guitar. So I went online, and the guitar store in Lincoln had a couple of used guitars, and this is just like one I used to have. It looks really good from a distance. It's very inexpensive, but it's real. So some cheap instruments aren't good for anything. This is an okay guitar. Doesn't have a real good sound. It's got kind of a problem right now, though. It's got a broken string. So I got it out Sunday, or Wednesday night, rather. Got it out Wednesday night. We were going to sing Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. And I tuned up my guitar, because you can't play a guitar when it's not in tune. I had put new strings on it, and they stretch for quite a while. It's not in tune right now, as a matter of fact. And as I was tuning up the strings, one of them broke. Boing! There you go. So now I got a guitar that until I replace this string, it really isn't good for much. So you know, as you try to play a scale, for example. Oops. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la. That's it. There's no T, do. <laughs> this guitar is lacking a T, do. All right. The B string is gone. And it isn't good for much. You can't. You can still play some chords, but there's a note missing. It really isn't fully functioning. And I thought, you know what? This is a little bit like the Christian life. When I came to Jesus, I was like a guitar. Put it into the hand of the hands of a master guitar player, Jesus. I put my life into his hands for him to use me. But then he had to tune me up. I was out of tune. There were things out of line. You know what I found out in my life, just like I found out when I played the guitar? Every time you play the guitar, you have to sit down and tune it up again. The strings stretch a little bit, temperature happens, some of them get a little tighter, some of them get a little looser, and things are out of tune. This was really not in tune right now, sort of. Oh, wait a minute, there's no B string at all. All right. And then sometimes things are just missing and need to be replaced. So there's two steps here. One is to put your life into Jesus' hands, that's when he saves you and you're going to heaven. He comes into your heart. The other is to put yourself into his hands to be tuned up every day. A little sin creeps in, a few problems, some bad attitudes, and we all need an adjustment on a regular basis. And sometimes we need a new string. All right, you can take your seats. <laughs> When I saw that guitar at the guitar store, I thought, my goodness, it looks just like the one I bought in 1969. And I had for almost 50 years. It's even the same brand. And uh, only mine had a rosewood body. Sounded a little better. 115 bucks. Not bad, huh? So I figured, you know, good enough for a wanna.
But anyway, we'll play it sometime here. Well, this morning we're looking at one of the, the second of the seven last questions that are part of our Lord's passion. Uh, and this one, again, comes after the resurrection, so not before. I'm not building up to that, but just taking some of the questions that surround Christ's death and resurrection. And this one occurs in the Gospel of Luke in the chapter, 24th chapter and the 17th verse. So I think I'll read that section. It starts with verse 13, Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them, two of the disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love this, by the way. And he said to them, What things? What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Now the next verse is another one of the questions. We'll deal with that at another time. O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? But today, this question in verse 17. What is this conversation you are holding with each other as you walk? In other words, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? What is your discussion? Jesus is interested in what we have to say. This isn't the first time that he asked that question. There's an incident that's recorded in Mark 9. The disciples are walking along the road and uh, they're talking about who is the greatest among them. And when they get to their destination, Jesus asks them, what were you talking about on the road? And they don't say anything because they're embarrassed. As they know that wasn't a very good conversation to be having. Comparing one another and seeing who's the, who's the best among them is not the idea of being a follower of Jesus. And Jesus wants to know what's coming out of our mouth. Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, the mouth speaks. We talk about what's in our heart. What's in our heart, in our thoughts, in our reflections, comes out of our mouth. 
So what are you talking about? So I don't know if this is exactly an exegesis of this passage, per se, as it is an attempt to think about this question that Jesus asks his disciples twice. What are you talking about? Because it's the overflow of the heart. What's the condition of our heart? What is the topic of our speech? Have you ever gotten into trouble for something you said? Oh, I'm sure that's never happened to you. You misspoke, as we say. Maybe you fudged a little bit when you said something. You didn't tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Maybe you just told a flat-out lie at some point to cover up something you'd done wrong. Maybe you boasted of something. And it's a trap. I know it's a, it's a trap for me because I like to pretend that I know things. The older I get, the less I know. But sometimes I like to let on that I know something, and that's how gossip happens. I've gotten in trouble for doing that. I won't go into details. It's too embarrassing. It's none of your business. Anyway. Why did I say that? Why did I boast about myself in that way? Why did I say something that hurt somebody else? See, all of this is this serious question. What were you talking about on the way as you went along? And I think, as I think about this, there are certain aspects of speech, certain levels of speech. Uh, I think people from Nebraska are a lot like people from Minnesota in this regard. One of the things we always talk about is the weather. And we can't do anything about it, but we talk about it and we complain about it. And, uh, you know, this Minnesota is not that different from Nebraska. If you don't like the weather, just wait a day, it'll change, right? We, li we live in that kind of a climate, it's always changing, and, and it's frequently something we don't like, and so we talk about the weather. We can talk about a lot of different things. There are levels of conversation. So just think about that. There's an intellectual level of conversation. You know, we're made up of body and soul and spirit. And soul is suke, the Greek. Suke is with which, you, with which we get psychology. It refers to the mind. And the mind is made up of intellect and also our emotions are part of our mental state and also our will, our decider factor within us. And so we have conversation on these levels, the level of the intellect, and it's conversation about information. And the Bible has lots of information in it. Paul passes along information to the Colossians in the second chapter, verses 1 to 3. I want you to know, that's information, how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And then he has, gives some information about Christ a little bit later, and he refers to him as one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Information is found in Christ. We talk about the what where, who, what, where, when, why, and how, and how much, and what does it all mean? Is it true or is it false? We talk about information. And there's a continuum to this. It can be very simple. We can be talking about the weather, some very basic things, or we can talk about very, very complicated things. It can be very crucial information. For example, if I said right now, the church is on fire, that would be crucial information because you'd have to head for the exits. But if I recited to you the binomial theorem, it would be just one more day when you didn't use advanced algebra in your life, right? It'd be true. I, I 
by the way, to keep my, my mind from going the way my dad's did, I try to learn new things. And before I came here, I'd gotten to the place in advanced algebra where I was ready to study calculus, and once again, I dropped it. But I, I, when, I, when I got here at the end of September, I knew the binomial theorem by heart. I've since forgotten it. Don't use it, you're going to forget it. Information can be true but irrelevant, or it can be true and extremely relevant, extremely crucial. Are you talking about information when you have a conversation? A lot of our conversation is based on very simple information. Let's be sure that it's true. And it can be spiritual information. That's what we've been talking about to some degree on Sunday mornings in our evangelism class. We should take every opportunity that there is, that we have with other people to share Christ with them. I brought a book to the evangelism class this morning called 42 Seconds. As one of the writers that works for the Navigators Foundation has written this book, 42 Seconds. What's the significance of that? If you're at the class, you know. He uh, was reading in his devotional reading one day, and something occurred to him that Jesus had a lot of brief conversations with people. So he called up his assistant and gave his assistant an assignment to read through the English Bible, the Gospels, and write down all of the incidents where Jesus had a conversation with somebody. That's step number one. Step number two was to read each conversation out loud and record it and then time it. And what he discovered was the average length of a conversation that Jesus had one-to-one -one with somebody else that's recorded in Scripture was 42 seconds. 42 seconds with Jesus. Sometimes we think we're going to have to talk forever to lead somebody to Christ. In a short time, Herod said, do you think to make a Christian of me to the Apostle Paul? Maybe it only takes 42 seconds. Maybe we only have less than a minute. It didn't bother Jesus if he had less than a minute. He conveyed the information that was necessary and applicable. So information is important. And we should strive as much as possible to make it be relevant to meet the urgent need that people have for the gospel. Oh, it doesn't mean that Jesus never made small talk. Why would they record that and put it in the Bible? Parchment is expensive. Ink is expensive. So that was limited to exactly what we needed to know. But the point is that it doesn't take much to convey crucial information. Some conversation is about feelings. Now, typically, this is going to be stereotypical, but typically guys aren't good about feelings. Uh, we, we, don't, we, we, don't, we like to think, we like to have information, but we don't like to talk about our feelings very much. I, I was uh, working with a, a spiritual director as I was working on my doctorate, and you don't, we don't have Baptist spiritual directors. It's a different, I won't go into what that all is involved, but he would ask me questions in the Jesuitical method of doing things and to make me think about things. But I started saying to him, well, I think this or I think that, and he was always stop me. And he said, you think too much, Wick. How do you feel about it? Now, my first reaction to that is, who cares how I feel about it? But the point is, I care about how I feel about it, even if I don't know how I feel. If you don't know how you feel, you're doomed to be run by your emotions. It doesn't mean you don't feel, it just means you can't put a name on it. And our emotions are a terrific motivator for our behavior. So we might have some inner anger that comes out inappropriately. It might be all kinds of problems that result if we can't identify our emotions. It's not a bad thing 
to talk about how we feel. I mean, emotions include love and hatred and so forth and so forth and so on. And you know, the Bible has a lot to say about emotions, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God demonstrates his love for us. And while we're at sinners, Christ died for us. Feelings are important. And feelings are also on a continuum. There are feelings that are non-threatening, they're on the surface, and then there are those that are deeply discomforting. A, a long time ago, it seems like in another life, my wife and I went to a marriage encounter weekend. And one of the things that Marriage Encounter focused on, I, I don't know what it's doing today, but it was to help men talk about their emotions. And you would do writing exercises and talk about how you felt about things. And it started with some very surface things, but on Friday night, by Saturday afternoon, they had you answering a very difficult question. How would I feel if you were to die? That's pretty emotional. And there are a lot of men who had never shed a tear in front of their wives in their lives that broke down and bawled like babies as they shared that answer to that question with their wives. They don't want to think about it. It's painful to think about it, but it was good for their wives to hear that they cared, that they would miss them if they were gone. I don't even know how to fry an egg, Pat, so I don't know how I'd do it. There'd be a lot of burnt up pots and pans, so for the sake of the pan, please don't die. Anyway. Emotional. Some of these things are very deep. Surface emotions. I'm happy because the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. But deep emotions, how I feel about the death of a loved one. We need to talk about these things. What are these things that you're talking about? It's all right. But we have a reluctance to do this. Here's another example of where it's important. To be able to talk about not just information, but about feelings. I asked this question of a group of students in Russia. We read that passage of scripture that tells us that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I asked a class of about 30 students, how does that make you feel? And I got about a dozen answers from the young men explaining what the passage meant. And I said, that's good, but that's not what I'm looking for. The next one would answer, more information. That's not what I'm looking for, and so on. Finally, one of the young ladies in the class raised her hand, and I said, yes, and she said, it makes me sad. I said, thank you. Don't you ever have an emotional response to Scripture when you're reading it? I'll bet you do. But maybe you're the kind of person, like a typical guy, who doesn't ever think about that. You think about the information, but you don't think about your emotional response. And it's okay to have an emotional response. We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, and with all of our strength, and our mind includes intellect and emotions and will. We're supposed to know the facts of Scripture. We're also supposed to respond in our hearts. And if it's in our hearts to respond, it'll be in our mouth when we talk about it. It's all right to talk about your emotions. If that's all we talk about, that's boring. There needs to be information to anchor us as well. But I think a lot of our conversation is just a screen designed so that we don't have to talk about how we feel because we don't want to think about how we feel. So let's communicate on an intellectual level, informational level, and an emotional level. And then what about will? 
The will also comes out in things that we say because the will involves imperatives, do this or do that. It involves making promises, stating our intentions. I promise, you see, that I will pick up a half gallon of milk on my way home. That's fairly trivial. I promise to love you with all of my heart and soul and to never part from you until we die. Like Ruth talking to Naomi, like a husband talking to his wife or a wife to her husband. That's pretty deep and serious. We say things that are based on our will, and our conversation is going to involve that. Sometimes our promises are relatively inconsequential. Sometimes they're highly inappropriate because we don't mean it, but sometimes they're very, very important and highly necessary. A parent giving direction to a child is important. Manipulation is always inappropriate. Some of our conversation might be designed to make other people feel bad, to make them feel guilty so that they'll do what we want them to do. That's not appropriate. God doesn't work that way. Jesus didn't work that way. We shouldn't work that way. Manipulation as an expression of the will should be right out of the conversation of a Christian. And then we come to the spiritual level of conversation. Now, any one of these types of conversation can be spiritual, but there is a particular kind of conversation that is Christian because, why? Because it edifies, and edifies means what? It means to build up. It encourages other people. It encourages love for God. It encourages people to look to God. It encourages people to depend upon God. It encourages people to consider what God has done for them. It encourages others to feel good about themselves. It encourages people to even have an appropriate kind of love for themselves. Self-care. Spiritual talk can also, however, be not of God, not Christian. It's a kind of spiritual talk that is aimed at producing dependence and bondage to spiritual forces. So there's bad kinds of spirituality. But the spirituality that's in Scripture is always very, very positive. So how should we be talking? We should be talking spiritually about the simple things in Scripture, certainly what the writer of Hebrews calls the ABCs of salvation. But we should also go to the deep things of Scripture and talk about the things that are complicated and that are hard to understand and to grapple with those things. They may not be part of our conversation with unbelievers, but with one another. We should sometimes go beyond the surface level of talking about the weather, talking about the day's news events, and talking instead about how God has revealed things to us in Scripture. Some things that are hard to understand. We could be sharing our questions about that and discussing them and looking for answers. What should we talk about? We should talk about things that are true. There we can depend on Scripture as a source of that truth. We should talk about things that produce love because God loves us and we're to love one another in the body of Christ. We should build up one another and not tear one another down. The Christian church has been described as the only army in the world that shoots its wounded. Sometimes what we do is we snipe at one another. We criticize one another in very, very negative ways. Now, that's not the same thing as offering correction or suggestions. That's positive. That's to build up. 
I, listen, it's, it's sometimes hard to do this, but it's a good idea to welcome healthy criticism that's meant in a positive way. Because how are we going to get better? Uh, how are we going to tune up the guitar if we don't have a standard to compare ourselves to? We need to hear from one another about what needs to be corrected. You know, I've, I've been a pastor for a longer time than I care to remember. And I, I've learned the, the truth of the expression um, that, that we learned from uh, one of our experts at the EV Free, e Free seminars, that all small churches are peculiar, and they're all peculiar in a different way. I've shared that with you before, right? One of the, when I met with this uh, group of leaders here at this church when we first candidated here, I asked that question, so how is Hastings Berean Bible pe peculiar? And they had some ideas. It's interesting about that right away. They, I won't tell you what they were right now, but I had, they had some ideas. And usually in a smaller church, there's a peculiar person or two. You know who you are, okay? That gives a flavor, <laughs> gives a flavor to that congregation. And whereas if you, well, this is what small churches have that's so special, by the way, because big churches don't have that. Big churches have a sample of the general population, and one nutcase can't affect the whole church. But that nutcase might be a good thing. You know, they thought Jesus was crazy, after all. So it might be a good thing. But it could also be a bad thing. And I can think in every church that I've served about somebody who was in an important leadership position who was totally bent. I mean, there were things that were wrong about that person that repelled people from the church and from the gospel. And they were generally older, uh, maybe even older than I am, and they generally had been at the church for a long, long time. And people would say, oh, that's just Joe, or that's just Ben, or that's just Don. In other words, they've given up trying to correct him, or maybe they never even tried. And you know what? That's sad. And you know who it's saddest of all for? Is Don, or Bill, or Ben. Because people knew there was something wrong. People knew there was a flaw there. People knew that there was a repelling characteristic that was actually discouraging people from commitment to Christ or being part of the body of Christ, and they never did anything about it. And so Christian talk should include the truth, even if it's uncomfortable. It shouldn't always be positive if it needs to be negative, but it could be negative in a loving and edifying way. For example, see the epistles of the Apostle Paul. He didn't hold back from pointing out things that were wrong and correcting them. Witness especially in Galatians, you stupid Galatians, okay? You stupid Galatians. Well, we are stupid sometimes. Jesus lovingly had a nickname for his disciples. You have little faith. The little faith guys. Oh, if only you had the faith of a mustard seed, the size of a grain of a mustard seed. You could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would go. But you don't even have that. It was the truth. And even up until the resurrection, they had that problem. And even afterwards, they had that problem. And so we have that problem of being little faith. 
Truth among believers should be non-manipulative, not trying to get people to do things that we want in some backhanded way, but together seeking out what Jesus wants in a positive way. Imperatives, when they're given, should be clear and not confusing. What do you want? Spell it out. If there's details you want, spell out what they are. And of course, our conversation with one another and with others should be spiritual and not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Remember, 42 seconds is all it takes to bring somebody to Jesus because that's all the time Jesus needed. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray our conversations would be acceptable in your sight. As the psalmist said, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. We recognize, Heavenly Father, where those words come from, the thoughts that we think. And so may our thoughts be acceptable to you so that our speech will be acceptable to you. Lord, help us to say those things that are true, those things that are necessary, those things that are emotionally honest, those things that are edifying. And so, Heavenly Father, may our conversation help the church to grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.